Well, Exodus chapter 10 and verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. And back in Exodus 5, 2, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? Who is he? Who is the Lord that I should serve him? And God responded loud and clear. I am the Lord that you should serve me. I am the Lord. God has an agenda, folks. And it's the same agenda he's had since day six. Since the day that he created man, he's had a specific agenda for man. And it's never changed that we may know that he is the Lord. That's the whole, the whole deal, right there, in a nutshell. That's it. That we may know that He is the Lord. That we may come into that knowledge, that understanding. He has an agenda. Think about this. With the plagues, I don't know if you realize this, but God had the power to remove Israel any time He wanted. He could have snuck them out by stealth of night. As a matter of fact, as we get to the plague of darkness, which we talked about on Sunday, we'll look at it again tonight, there were three solid days of complete darkness. Could he not have led the people out secretly then? Snuck them out of Egypt and gotten away with, you know, getting them out and keeping them safe and not having to go through these plagues? He could have done that. So why didn't the Lord just take them out? Why not take them out at the very beginning? Why not just strike Egypt with darkness? Moses goes in, gets the kids. They're all in Goshen there. says, let's go. They run. You know, three million people out by stealth of night. Why go through these plagues? J. Vernon McGee put it this way. He said, God wanted to demonstrate to his people what he was able to do before he took them into the wilderness. So God is teaching a lesson to Egypt, yes, but he's also saying something to Israel. I am the Lord, and I am sufficient, and I am powerful, and I can get you back to the promised land. I want you to trust me. Now, they don't do the greatest job of trusting him, as we'll see as the Exodus continues. We'll see them falter all along the path. But can you imagine, what would it take to get three million people to up and leave everything and head out on a massive journey? Who could do such a thing? Who would believe that it could be done? The Lord needed to show His people that He could do it. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 34 tells us, Has a God tried to go to take for Himself a nation from within another nation? By trials and signs and wonders, by war and by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm, and by great terrors, as the Lord your God did before you in Egypt, before your very eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, He is God, and there is no other beside Him. Again, God's agenda, that you may know that He's the Lord, that He's God, that there's no other beside Him. That this agenda of self-revelation and this self-revelation of God is the only thing that can provide salvation for mankind. John chapter 1 verse 18 tells us no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. And Psalm 27 verse 1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? It is the knowledge of the self-revealed God that saves us. That's how we end up saved. It's by knowing Him. There is no other way. You all know that. You understand that. It's why the self-revelation of God throughout all history is so important. Because until a people know Him, they will not follow Him. 
Until a people believe in Him, they cannot be saved. And while He is revealing His power before Egypt as God the Lord, He's also revealing His power before Israel as God the Savior. But listen to this. Sometimes we need a little bit of time to realize we need saving. Sometimes it takes a while. And maybe it's an encouragement to you. If you've been working on someone, if you've been talking to someone, you've been praying for someone, hoping that they would come to a knowledge of Jesus so as to be saved. Sometimes it takes a while. And sometimes, like with Israel, it takes some trials. Israel went through 400 years of slavery. And God preserved them as a people. Israel went through the first two plagues with Egypt. They experienced the blood. They experienced the frogs along with Egypt. But God provided for them. Israel saw the subsequent plagues. Watched the next several plagues take place before them. Horrifying. But God protected them. It's interesting. People have been through a lot. But they come out of Egypt with a huge testimony. An amazing testimony that they will be able to tell, as God says, I want you to be able to tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson what has happened here. I want you to have a testimony. Not only have you seen and experienced what's happened, but you will be able to share what's happened with your family and with generation after generation. Maybe you may feel like you've been through a lot in your life. Some have been through a lot in the last few weeks. But listen, there is no testimony Without the test. You just have imony. No testimony without the test. In fact, you might look at it this way. Without the test, I moan. It's what I do. When I haven't been tested and tried, I get frustrated. I whine. I complain. I don't recognize the sovereignty, the authority, and the power of God to bring me through different various trials. But God says, after the test, you'll know that I am God. And you will be able to testify to that wonderful truth. What's God's agenda? That we may know that He is the Lord. And as the world is fast approaching maximum velocity, if we just were talking about with the euro taking, taking out the dollar, so much is happening around us with prophetic significance for the end times. As we see all this taking place, both Egypt, that is the world, and God's children that is you and I, will know. The Bible guarantees that everyone is going to know. As we sang in the song, as we read, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everybody will know. Everybody is going to know, will come to that revelation of the truth that God is the Lord. Jeremiah 31:34, and I love this verse. They will not teach again. Each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. There is coming a day when evangelism will will cease and desist, because we will all know him. Because there won't be a person walking the face of the earth who does not know God is the Lord. Now one more note here, for it will come up again and again in Scripture. God's display of power was not just for the sake of the faith of the adult Israelites, but for the sake of the children as well. Again, he said that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson, that you may know that I am the Lord. And it reminds me again, and we see it over and over and over in Scripture, how important it is for us to pass on our faith to our children. 
For them to hear our faith and see our faith and experience our faith lived out before them so that they can take it with them. It's so important for God the Father that we pass on our faith that He gives us tools to do that. He gave Israel specific tools, seven feasts as a matter of fact, that were all designed in time of celebration for the older of Israel to teach the younger of Israel what it was all about. Frank, last uh, Easter, last Passover, took us through the Passover and talked about it and shared it. And there are several points throughout the Passover where a young man at the table will ask, ask a specific question during that feast. And the question that is answered, and it's all a huge teaching tool, and God uses feasts to do that. We're going to study the Passover in chapter 12, not tonight, but we'll get there within the next week. And rabbis say that the Passover and the Sabbath were the two things that maintained the Jews' identity during their entire diaspora. During the time of the dispersion, the two things that held their identity, because as we've talked about before, it takes less than 200 years for a culture to completely lose their identity once they've lost a homeland. Once a, a people is without a homeland, identity is lost. Within 200 years, across the board, that's the way it has been through all history, except with Israel. 17, 1800 years of no home, no place to go, dispersed, scattered throughout the whole earth, and yet they maintained their sense of Judaism. How? Rabbis today will tell you the Sabbath and the Passover. Because by the keeping of those two things, they on an annual and even a weekly basis remembered, remembered, remembered who they were. I think it's interesting, by the way, that during the millennium, Zechariah 14.16 tells us that we will celebrate a feast. The Feast of Tabernacles. And I got to thinking about this. Why? Why is it that we'll celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles during the millennium? What's the point? If these feasts are about reminding us, what's the point of that? Well, the Bible tells us that children will be born in the millennium. Isaiah 61.20-23. Kids who did not see the tribulation did not experience it, did not see glorious, the glorious appearing of Jesus. Kids who will be born after the fact and then will not see all the amazing, wonderful things happen, all the acts of God, they're not going to see it. All they will be able to do is hear about it. And I believe the Feast of Tabernacles will be a time of celebration that people will tell their children what the Lord has done. Interesting, the Feast of Tabernacles, it reminds us that Jesus came, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, dwelt, tabernacled, among us. So the feast, a reminder. A reminder that the Lord is the Lord. And God wants that passed on time and time again. Verse 3, he goes on and says, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh. And they said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory. They shall cover the surface of the land so that no one will be able to see the land. They will also eat the rest of what has escaped, what has left you from the hail. And they will eat every tree which sprouts from you or for you out of the field. Then your houses shall be filled and the houses of your servants and the houses of all the Egyptians. 
something which neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day that they came upon the earth until this day and he turned and went out from Pharaoh Pharaoh Moses says you're about to be blasted by bugs in a way that you've never seen before and you think the landscape is marred now by all the hail that just fell just wait the locusts will take the rest they will strip the land clean so he turns on his heels he walks away and now the counselors of Pharaoh come along and they have their say verse 7 Pharaoh's servant said to him how long will this man be a snare to us let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God do you not realize that Egypt is destroyed don't you get it Pharaoh we're losing the battle here it's a, it's a wash everything's gone and locusts are going to come now we've got to get rid of these people and it's interesting the advisors say let the men go now I think their focus was on the word go but Pharaoh heard something different his focus was on the word men yeah let the men go but if we keep the kids here and the cattle here and the women here and just the men go they'll have to come back they will only go for three days see Pharaoh was on to this he knew something was up bigger than a three day celebration a three day worship he didn't want to lose his bread and butter he did not want to lose the work of the Israelites so the advisors say let the men go and he says yeah let the men go look at verse 8 so Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh and he said to them go serve the Lord your God uh, who are the ones that are going Pharaoh's thinking men only Pharaoh's thinking again let the men go but Moses has something entirely different in mind for Moses read verse 8 or verse 9 we shall go with our young and our old our sons and our daughters our flocks our herds we shall go for we must hold a feast to the Lord this was family business the reason I wanted to stop and go back is I realized something over the last 15 years um, especially doing a lot of youth ministry and dealing with and talking with parents in youth ministry I rarely saw a Christian parent who didn't want the best for their kids Rarely. I mean, it, it happened, but most of the time, Christian parents, most parents, want the best for their kids. But I would watch Christian parents define what was best. And the tragic thing is when we define what's best for our children based on culture, based on what the culture says is best a good education, success in the marketplace social acceptance we want the best of what the world has to offer for our kids and in so doing we miss the best of what God has to offer and I'm not saying that education is a bad thing or success in the marketplace or social acceptance those things what I am saying is that unfortunately and tragically so many parents within the church are driving their kids to success and they're forgetting about the one thing they need God's agenda that they may know that he is the Lord that's number one it's more important than any other thing that we drive our kids into and Moses words here are great advice he says we shall go to worship with our young with our sons with our daughters we're not going to go worship without them we worship together this is a family affair Proverbs 22 6 says train up a child in the way he should go even when he is old he will not depart from it Ephesians 6 4 fathers do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord and God I pray help me as a father to train up my kids that way help me make the Lord my primary focus for my children 
In his first term, President Bush signed into law his education reform bill called No Child Left Behind. I love that phrase. How about that for the church? No child left behind. No child driven into the world away from the Lord. Because the reality is that the No Child Left Behind Act may be a good idea trying to get everybody educated, but there's going to be a lot of highly educated people in hell. Education will not save us. I believe the Lord wants us to determine that we will leave no child behind as we go to worship our God. Now moving on, verse 10. Check this out. Now he said to them, Thus may the Lord be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. Now that sounds weird. Is he saying, Hey, God be with you if I let you go. Is he playing mind games? The wording here is very important and there are two different ways to read this. I, kind of, I ran across a phrase, and I think this is an interesting phrase. I'm going to say this phrase, and there are two different ways to hear it. And when I say this phrase, it's typical that women will hear it one way, and men will hear it another way. Okay? So try this out. Just think this through and see how you hear this phrase. You ready for this? Nobody has anything they can throw at me, right? Okay. Woman without her man is useless. Woman without her man is useless. Now, typically when you say that, here's what women hear. Men will hear, woman without her man is useless. That's right. Because a woman needs a man. Otherwise, what is she without the man, right? What a woman tends to hear is, woman without her man is useless. Get the difference there? Okay. All right. I thought that was kind of funny. Anyway, here's what the wording sounds like in verse 10. What Pharaoh is saying is, may the Lord be with you when... The real word there, it's not if, it's literally when. May the Lord be with you when I let you and your little ones go. But then all of a sudden, halfway through the sentence, I mean, Pharaoh catches himself and realizes what he's doing and locks in and he goes, wait a minute. He says, take heed. He's saying, behold, look, hold on a second. Evil's in your mind. That phrase, evil is in your mind, in your mind is literally on your face. It's as if Pharaoh is going, okay, God be with you. Take you. Take your little ones and go. And then he sees Moses light up. All right, we're going. And Pharaoh goes, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, 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 I'm not going to do this. Evil is in your mind. Not so, he says. Go now, the men, and serve the Lord, for that is what you desire. And so they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Pharaoh's pride wells up here. And in mid-sentence, literally, I think what's going on, in mid-sentence he goes, no, wait a minute, they're trying to pull the wool over my eyes. I'm not going to have it. And so he drives them out from his presence. Well, verse 12 tells us, The Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come up on the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, even all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord directed an east wind on the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. The locusts came up over the land of Egypt and settled in all the territory of Egypt. They were very numerous. There had never been so many locusts, nor would there be so many again. For they covered the surface of the whole land, so that the land was darkened. And they ate every plant of the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left, lest nothing green was left on the tree or the plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Locusts. Locusts on Egypt. David Levy in his book Joel, the Day of the Lord, wrote the following. He said, those in the Middle East call locusts the army of God. 
As an army, they march in regular order, they camp in the field at night, and in the morning they rise with the sun, dry their wings, and fly in the direction of the wind. Proverbs chapter 30 verse 27 tells us the locusts have no king, yet all of them go out in ranks. It is their sheer massive number that makes them so destructive. And David Levy goes on, he says, they number in the billions. They can cover an area of up to 10 miles in length and 5 miles wide and have been known to fly 17 hours at a time covering over 1,500 miles. Their vast number can blot out the sun bringing temporary darkness over the earth. And locusts in the Bible are always a picture of divine judgment. God brings locusts on the scene when judgment is near. When it's time, when the hammer is coming down. And by the way, the prophet Joel, who penned the verse or the phrase, the day of the Lord. He's the one, he's where we get that. He said it five times in his little three chapter book. He refers to a plague of a type of locust more horrifying than this plague on Egypt. For this locust plague literally decimated what was left of the land. By the time the locusts were finished with Egypt, Egypt was done. There was not a green thing left on the entire landscape. Completely, utterly stripped and destroyed. But Joel tells us that there is another kind of locust, more horrifying, that will appear in what is called the day of the Lord. That time of intense judgment yet to come. Joel chapter 1 verse 4 says, What the gnawing locust has left... The swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. This plague is described in detail in the book of Revelation. And I want you to see it real quickly. Revelation chapter 9. Flip your Bibles all the way over there. And listen to how these locusts are described. For as bad as it was for Egypt, this is what is coming on the entirety of planet Earth. Revelation chapter 9, beginning in verse 7. Revelation 9, 7. You can just follow along. Here we go. 9, 7. The appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. And on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold. And this is a little freaky. Their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like the hair of women, and their teeth were like the teeth of lions. They had breastplates plates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses rushing to battle. They have tails like scorpions and stings, and in their tails is their power to hurt men for five months. By the way, locusts live for five months. That's, that's a typical lifespan of a locust. They have as king over them the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon or Abaddon. And in the Greek he has the name Apollyon. And what's interesting here is that Proverbs 30 tells us that locusts have no king. We just read that verse, Proverbs 30, verse 27. The locusts have no king, yet all of them go out in ranks. And yet here in Revelation, we have a different kind of locust. A locust that has a king. And that king's name is Destroyer. And John 10.10, I think, tells us who the Destroyer is. Because the thief, John says, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And Jesus says, I come that they might have life and have it abundantly. But the thief comes to destroy Satan is the destroyer. 
And unlike the locusts in Egypt, the locusts in that time of tribulation, these demon locusts have a king calling them, driving them on. And that king's name is Destroyer. And that destroyer is Satan. The plague of locusts in Egypt, folks, foreshadows a much worse plague promised for the day of the Lord. Now flip back to Exodus again. Exodus chapter 10, looking at verse 16 now. The locusts have come, they've wiped out the land, it's a horrible destruction. And it tells us in verse 16 that Pharaoh hurriedly hurriedly called for Moses and Aaron. And he said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. (laughs) You think? Now therefore, please forgive my sin, only this once, and make supplication to the Lord your God, that he would only remove this death from me. And in verse 18, Moses went out from Pharaoh and made supplication to the Lord. How many times would you have prayed for Pharaoh? I mean, if it had been you... First time, second time, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth. How many times would you have gone out and prayed that God remove the plague from Pharaoh? This hard-hearted man who obviously isn't getting it. Obviously he doesn't care. Obviously he is going to turn his back again. He'll say, I'm sorry. He'll say, forgive me. He'll say, pray for me. But in the next moment he'll turn around and he will strike again. And how many times would you forgive someone like that in your own life? Someone who asks for a break and then breaks their word. Someone who apologizes but in the next day is doing the same thing against you again. How many times would you forgive? I'm amazed that God's grace stretches as far as it does. That he keeps forgiving. That he keeps extending grace. That he keeps giving Pharaoh opportunity to repent. But I'm equally amazed at Moses. Because it's Moses here who keeps praying. Moses who makes supplication to the Lord and I think Moses if you pray for him he's just going to take advantage of you again doesn't matter well Moses is going to make you look like a chump so Moses your prayer won't change his heart but Moses kept praying and praying and praying for this bitter adversary how do you deal with someone who continues to come against you How do you in your life focus on, deal with, handle a person who is constantly against you, set against you, bitter towards you? Moses models something that Jesus later taught very quickly, very clearly. Matthew chapter 5 verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the good and the evil and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, this is an interesting verse to me because the Lord has shown this to me several different angles of the same verse the last couple of weeks. In fact, in the last three times that I've read it, I've seen it differently. I had never seen this before. We often quote, and we even did on Sunday, that he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And that's a verse we often use. But look at the context here. In context, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? Because he causes the sun to rise on the righteous and the unrighteous. He sends rain on those who are evil and those who are good. What's the point? God does something here. We oftentimes read this verse and we think of sending rain on the righteous and the unrighteous as a problem. 
We're like the, uh, the newscasters, you know, who every time there's a little bit of rain, it's bad weather, and if there's sun, it's good weather. Why is that? Rain is not bad weather. It's just as good for the land. And the reality is that God uses the rain and the sun to nurture and grow, right? And so in that context, when Jesus says, pray for your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, pray for those who set themselves against you, he says, and here's why. Because God is able to send both the sun and the rain, the nurturing elements, to righteous people and unrighteous people. God is able to work in the life of someone who's good and someone who's evil. God can send His rain, He can send His Son, and if you're praying, you keep praying, you continue to pray over and over and over, ultimately God can nurture something in the person you're praying for. He can nurture a heart that's softened. He can crack and chip away that stoniness that causes the person to be set against you. And so Jesus says in Luke 6.27, I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who mistreat you. That is the answer, by the way, to the question. What do you do with someone who continues to harshly treat you? Even if you've extended the hand of love, even if you extend the hand of friendship or forgiveness, if someone continues to set themselves against you, what do you do? How do you handle that? What are you supposed to do with it? Pray for them. And pray for them, and pray for them, and pray for them. Because God sends the sun and the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Be patiently tenacious in prayer. Verse 19. So the Lord shifted the wind after Moses' prayer to a very strong west wind which took up the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not one locust was left in all the territory of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the sons of Israel go. And you might say, well great. So here's an example of what I'm dealing with. Moses prayed for Pharaoh and what happened? His heart was hard. And so another plague is coming. We need to realize something that it often takes hard knocks to chip away a hard heart. If we keep praying for those who curse us, understand this. There is a process that God often takes people through, especially those who are rebellious. And that process is pain and relief. And pain and relief. And pain and relief. And every time the pain may even get more difficult for them. I'm not saying pray for the pain of those who mistreat you, by the way. But as we pray for people, God takes them through a process. And that's what he's doing with Pharaoh. Inflicts him with a plague and then draws back and gives relief so that Pharaoh can think about what's happening. And he inflicts him again and draws back and brings relief. Sometimes that has to happen over and over and over. And you see where I'm going with this? That as we pray for people, especially those who are set against us, that God may take them through an entire season of difficulty and then relief and then difficulty and then relief so as to chip away at the heart but ultimately we can continue to pray that that heart will break open verse 21 then the Lord said to Moses stretch out your hand toward the sky that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt even a darkness which may be felt so Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. Now we talked about this on Sunday. 
And we covered that pretty in depth and looked at the darkness and all the things involved here and the fact that Israel had light in their dwellings. But there's something else that I didn't touch on Sunday that I want to cover here. It's amazing to me how stunning the parallel is between this plague of darkness and another very, very dark time that's talked about in the New Testament scriptures. John, in his Gospel, is very powerful in the way he uses, especially the phrases, light and darkness. He uses a lot of contrasting phrases as you read through his Gospel. And they're always on purpose. And there's a verse, John 13.30, that you might want to just kind of bookmark in your head. John 13 is the chapter where Jesus washes the apostles' feet. And it's an amazing chapter. And you, may, you know the story that he bent down and it's the night that he's going to be betrayed. And it's the last Passover and it's the first communion and it's all happening at once. And on that very night, Jesus wraps a towel around his waist and goes around and washes all the feet of his apostles, including the feet of Judas. Now what we're told happens after that is amazing. They sit down to the supper and Jesus is teaching them and he's taking them through the meal and he's breaking the bread and he's saying this is my body and he's giving the the wine and saying this is my blood and at one point ultimately he says one of you is going to betray me. And they all look at each other will it be me? Will it be me? Well yeah actually it's going to be all of them. They're all going to run. They're all going to flee. They're all going to take off when the stuff comes down. But Judas is the one. Jesus says the person that I dip this morsel into the dip with and give it to that person will betray me and he dips it and he gives it to Judas and then he says to Judas what you must do do quickly and John chapter 13 verse 30 tells us that Judas went out and gives us three words extremely descriptive and it was night it was night that wasn't just to give us a time stamp on when it was happening. Obviously, it was the, the Passover evening. Obviously, it was night. But John steps out and says, the moment that Judas made that decision, that ultimate decision to betray, when he left, headed out to betray Jesus, it was night. Darkness fell. And then Luke 22, verse 53, Jesus is now in the garden a little bit later on in that evening. And he's there praying with his apostles when a whole cadre of Roman soldiers and Jewish leaders come up and they decide they're, they're going to take him out now. And Jesus says this to them. He says, when I was daily with you in the temple, you stretched forth no hands against me. But this is your hour. The hour, he says, and the power of darkness. It was that time of great darkness. And then Matthew 27, 45, fast forward now, it's the next day, Jesus is on the cross. And as he's stretched up there, from noon until 3 o'clock, Matthew 27, 45 tells us, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. Noon to 3, how long is that? It's 3 hours. So for 3 hours it was dark while Jesus hung on the cross. Like for 3 days it was dark in Egypt. And then after that, Jesus dies and he goes into the tomb. How long was Jesus in the tomb? He was in the tomb for three days. But it was three days of abject darkness for the apostles. For these men who had followed him, who had been with him, who loved him, they waited in darkness. Their faith went dim as Jesus' body lay in the tomb, though his spirit was very busy during those three days. But the apostles didn't know. Their hearts were dark. Their minds were dark. Their eyes were dim. But the Bible tells us, and we see this in verse 23 of Exodus 10, 
All the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. And the reality is that for the child of faith, there is a promise of light in the dwelling. Now you might say, then why didn't the apostles have light? Why in this time of absolute darkness did the apostles not see? Did they not understand? Why were they not enlightened? God promises the believer in Christ that we will have light in the dwelling. You and I have something here that the apostles did not yet have. We have the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of God is the light in our dwelling. The Holy Spirit within us is the illumination. And it struck me in reading the crucifixion story again that the apostles did not have that. In fact, it's amazing they stayed with Him for the three years at all because they did not have the Holy Spirit indwelling them yet. That would happen after Jesus resurrected. At the end of the Gospel of John, when Jesus is with the apostles again and He breathes on them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. They receive the Spirit at that point, but not before. And so those three days of darkness when Jesus was in the tomb, they had no light. But you have light in you if the Spirit of Christ dwells within you. John 16.13 tells us when He, Jesus speaking, the Spirit of truth comes. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is to come. Why is it that Debbie can come in here tonight, sit down and say, the euro has topped the dollar, and we should be concerned about that? Because the Holy Spirit has already shown her what is to come. Why is it you understand these things? Why is it the people in the world don't seem to get it? Because without the Spirit, you don't have the illumination. You don't have the light in your dwelling. You cannot see what is to come. I think of another story, an amazing Bible story, and we talked about it last week. Belshazzar's feast. Belshazzar, who was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, having a great feast in his temple and in his palace. And he brings all the, the instruments and articles of the Jewish temple, the gold, the bowls, and brings them in there and they begin to drink out of them and a hand appears out of nowhere. Remember this from last week? The hand begins to write on the wall. And in that moment, something amazing happens. They can't read the writing. They're freaked out by it. They don't understand it. They want to call in all the, the magicians and priests. No one can interpret it. And the queen says, there was a guy... There was a guy back in the days of Nebuchadnezzar. I think he's still around. A guy named Daniel. And Nebuchadnezzar had a strange dream. And Daniel was able to interpret that dream. And in Daniel chapter 5 verse 11, they bring Daniel in to interpret what the hand wrote on the wall. And listen to their description of Daniel. She says, There is a man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. Now that's a pagan way of looking at it, but the queen recognized this in Daniel. He had in him a spirit that was greater than his own. Daniel had the light, the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. And she went on to say, In the days of your father, he had illumination. He's had insight and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, saying father there implying grandfather, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. The point is this, Daniel had the light in his dwelling. He had the illumination. And that's what happens when the Holy Spirit is in us, is we have light. In our dwelling, we have the illumination. Now you might say, okay, I know I've got the Holy Spirit in me. I know I've got the light, but sometimes I get depressed. Sometimes it seems like the light goes out. 
And sometimes I don't understand what's going on. I, I can't see things that I'd like to see. I can't predict what's coming down the line. What about those times? How do I maintain that sense of light? How do I maintain the sense of, as Les likes to say, the manifest presence of God in me? There's a very simple way to do that. You remember Jesus' resurrection and you remember Jesus' return. If you can focus on those two things, the light will burn bright within you. Do you believe that He rose from the dead? Let me just see a show of hands. Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Just making sure everybody does. If you believe that, listen to this verse. Romans chapter 8 verse 10. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. And this is an amazing verse. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The same spirit that rose up Jesus from the dead is the spirit that indwells you and me and brings illumination to our lives that's powerful that's overwhelmingly powerful that should knock us off of our seats the same spirit that raised Jesus to life is in me here tonight and so I think about the resurrection but I also think about Jesus coming and I think about it often why? because John said in 1 John 3 2 we know that when he appears we will be like him because we will see him just as he is and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure I've used this verse with you before and I will use it with you again because John tells us a mighty truth that if we focus on His coming, if we look for His return, we purify ourselves. There is a process where our lives become more godly, where we are more aware of God's presence as we're looking for His return. And it was the resurrection and the return, by the way, that illuminated the apostles once the Spirit indwelled them. It was that Spirit-directed focus on these two events that kept Peter and Paul and James and John and all the guys going for the next 30 to 60 years of their lives. Looking for Jesus' return. Remembering His resurrection. Knowing what that did for them and what this would do for them. And in all of their writings you see it over and over and over. The resurrection and the return. The return and the resurrection. These two things again and again. And 60 years after the resurrection... We see old John, the old apostle. He's been stuck out on the island of Patmos. And in Revelation chapter 1 verse 10 we see he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I love that verse. There was no choir. There was no praise band. There was no sound system. There were no Bibles. There was no fellowship to speak of whatsoever. There weren't even two or three gathered together in his name. There was just John. But John was in the Spirit. He remained in the Spirit, illuminated. Because of this, John received the revelation. Because he was in the Spirit. And John saw and understood and knew who God was. And knew that God dwelled within him. And I want to pray this right now. Would you bow your heads just for a moment? Holy Spirit, would you remind us of the resurrection? Remind us even here tonight how powerful that is, how important that, that event was and is to us today. Remind us that the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the Spirit that dwells in us and illuminates us. Remind us of that, Lord. And also, Jesus, remind us of your coming. 
keep our eyes fixed on that. God, I pray that the day in and day out of life will not distract us from looking to your return. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 24. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go serve the Lord. Only let your flocks and your herds be detained. Even your little ones may go with you. Now here he goes again. Compromise. Leave your flocks and herds. They still have to come back for the flocks and herds if we leave them here. But you can take your kids and go. I love Moses' response. Verse 25. You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice them to the Lord our God. Therefore, our livestock too shall go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we shall take some of them and serve the Lord our God. And until we arrive there, we ourselves do not know with what we shall serve the Lord. Not a hoof will be left behind. Not just a child, not even a hoof is going to be left behind, Pharaoh. We're out of here. And we're taking it all with us. Moses was going to leave nothing to the world. Everything was coming with him. Nothing gets left back. Everything goes. And there's a principle here that we need not miss. When I follow the Lord, whatever I have, at the moment of recognition... When I discover the Lord, when I see that He is the Lord and I want my life to be in His hands, when I follow Him, whatever I have in the way of gifts, talents, abilities, material goods, possessions, finances, even my spouse, my children, in fact, all my relationships exist for Him. They come with me and I put them in His hands. You don't have to leave it behind. You give it to Him to rework and to use because Romans 11.36 says for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever Amen Verse 27 But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he was not willing to let them go Then Pharaoh said to him Get away from me Beware you do not see my face again for in the day you see my face you shall die Pharaoh's hopping mad and Moses says You're right You're right. I'll never see your face again. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now this is heating up. And the Lord said to Moses, One more plague I will bring on Egypt and Pharaoh. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. Man, those three words send a shudder through my bones. One more plague. One more plague. This is what it's come to, Moses. And when this happens, Pharaoh will not only let you go, he will drive you out. Speak now, God says, in the hearing of the people, that each man ask from his neighbor and each woman from her neighbor for articles of silver and articles of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Furthermore, the man Moses himself was greatly esteemed in the land of Egypt both in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. The people of Egypt realized that God was the Lord, more powerful than any of their castrated idols. They also saw Moses as a mighty man. But it's interesting what God has his people do here. He says, Moses, tell the people to go next door to their neighbors and ask them for gold and silver. Now, can you imagine doing that? What would your neighbors say? 
Is it like a community collection for a barbecue or something? What you want my gold and silver? What is going on here? Why is God doing this? Why is he sending the people out to get their gold? By the way, the word ask here is sha'al. Sha'al in the Hebrew means demand. So it's not just ask, it's not just... Yeah, Bob, listen, God told me that I need to ask you for some stuff here. You just load it up in the back of the van, I'll be on my way. It's demand. You go to your neighbors and you demand gold and you demand silver and God made the the Egyptians favorable toward them. Later on in chapter 12 we'll find out that God did this to plunder Egypt. So not only did the Israelites go out but they plundered Egypt as if winning a mighty battle in which not a shot was fired. Not Not an arrow was shot. Nothing happened. They just walked out of there rich. They plundered Egypt. This cracks me up. God is making sure that Israel leaves with 430 years of back pay. They're getting it all back with compounded interest. Now let me give you a little piece of godly advice here from what we see happening. God is able to take care of your needs. God's able to make sure that you are covered. And in the workplace, we need to know this. And this is the same God. What we're studying, who we're studying here, looking at here, this is our God. We don't have to worry about our wages. We don't have to be stressed out about being taken advantage of by a boss or a co-worker. We don't have to get our heads stuck in the socks and our hands in the bonds of financial worry. Matthew chapter 7 verse 31, Jesus says, don't worry. Saying, what are we going to eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? Stop your worrying. Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, but your Heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. You seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What's your job? What is your work? It's to believe Him. That's it. It's to trust Him. It's that simple. Not to stress out about, how am I going to pay the next bill? How were the Israelites going to be able to afford once they got to the promised land and set up shopping? How were they going to do that? God took care of them. How was Moses' mother going to survive? I love that story. We looked at it early on. Was it back in chapter chapter 2, verse 9? It tells us that Moses' mother not only got Moses back to nurse him, but got paid for it. She got wages for it. Because God takes care of His people. And He knows the needs of of his people. Now Moses lays out to Pharaoh the final proclamation of judgment beginning in verse 4. Moses says, Thus says the Lord about midnight and going out into the midst of Egypt. And all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on his throne even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones all the firstborn of the cattle as well. Moreover, there shall be such a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before, and such as never shall be again. Now we've got to pause and ask the question, why is it that God goes after the firstborn so vehemently? Why does he go after them like this? Why is he taking them out? A couple of clear reasons. Number one, because God had declared Israel to be his firstborn. And his firstborn had been severely treated. You may recall the successor of the Pharaoh prior to this one had all the firstborn males of Israel, the firstborn of God. All the males were 
were murdered, thrown into the Nile, and drowned. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 21 through 23, the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power. I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, Let my son go that he may serve me, but you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. God promised he would do it. Pharaoh, if you don't let my firstborn go, your firstborn will die. But there's another lesser known fact. The reason why God would have taken out all the firstborn children of Egypt. Because the firstborn of both man and beast in Egypt belonged to the gods of Egypt. When they were born, the firstborn, if it was a cow, if it was a pet sheep, if it was a firstborn son... All the firstborn of Egypt belonged to the gods, were dedicated to the gods, and now God is taking what belongs to the Egyptian gods, who are now defunct, and he's taking them for his own. They now belong to him. And verse 7, going on, But against any of the sons of Israel a dog will not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these your servants will come down to me and bow themselves before me, saying, Go out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Is it because the Jewish people were better than the Egyptian people that they were brought out? Is that the reasoning behind it? Oh, there are probably some who would think so. Flip in your Bibles one more time. This is the last time we'll flip tonight, but Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 5. Ezekiel chapter 20. There's something we need to understand about the people Israel. Something to see, a similarity in fact, that they shared with the people of Egypt. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 5. The Lord says, Thus says the Lord God, On the day when I chose Israel, and swore to the descendants of the house of Jacob, and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, when I swore to them, saying, I am the Lord your God, on that day I swore to them, to bring them out from the land of Egypt into a land that I had selected for them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all the lands. And I said to them, Cast away, each of you, the detestable things of his eyes, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. Why? Because I am the Lord your God. But look at verse 8. But they rebelled against me. Who, the Egyptians? No, the Israelites. They rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. They did not cast away the detestable things of their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them, to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I acted, listen to this, I acted, don't miss this, I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them by bringing them out of the land of Egypt." So I took them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. I gave them my statutes and informed them of my ordinances. 
by which if a man observes them, then he will live. Also I gave them my Sabbaths to be assigned between me and them, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. This is amazing. Because what God declares here is that Israel was every bit as bad as Egypt when it came to idolatry. Every bit as bad when it came to chasing after the detestable things, the deplorable things, the things that God wanted them to have nothing to do with. Israel was not saved because of their goodness. They were not distinct with the Lord because they were so righteous. They were saved for one reason and one reason alone, for the sake of the name of God. He said, and I repeat, I acted for the sake of my name. That's why. That's why they were saved. For his name's sake, so that they might know that he is the Lord. Israel did not deserve, they did not earn the blessing of distinction. And neither do we. Neither do we. Lest we ever begin to think of ourselves more highly than others who live in the world around us. We are here tonight by God's sovereign grace. That's it. We are not more spiritual or worthy or deserving than anyone else in the rest of the world. We are recipients of grace. And that is the only distinction. That's the only thing that I can point to that makes me different than anybody else in the world is I happen to have blood on me. The blood of Jesus. That has cleansed me from sin and brought me into grace. Gang, we're in the kingdom because God wants us there. We're in the kingdom because God chose us, because He loves us, because He has graced us in. And Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now understand what Paul's saying. We were dead in our sins and the bottom line is dead people are useless. They are. You ever tried to talk to a dead person? You ever taken a dead person to a party? They're boring. They don't do anything. They sit around and they rot. There was an interesting situation happened several years ago uh, at the grave of Beethoven. I don't know if you heard about this. That there was noise actually coming out of his grave. And so a lot of interested people went around and gathered around and began to dig and open it up. And they, they, they opened up his tomb and there he was, sitting there. And he had bunches of paper around him and manuscripts and he was scrawling, mostly erasing stuff and throwing it away and erasing stuff and throwing it away. And they said, Beethoven, what are you doing? And he said, don't bother me, I'm decomposing. <laughs> or maybe you might think of this. What would Abraham Lincoln be doing if he were alive today? No, he'd be scratching the inside of his coffin. That's what he'd be doing because if he was alive today, he'd be in his coffin, scratching. He's trying to wake you up a little bit, but we'll just move on. Dang, we were dead in our sins. We were dead in our sins. Is there a more graphic picture? But remember again, the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead also made us alive with Christ though we were dead we did nothing to earn it we did not deserve it we were dead people notice this again though verse 8 how Moses leaves Pharaoh's presence back in Exodus 11 
verse 8 tells us the last sentence. He went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Hot anger. Moses is hopping mad here. He is ticked off. He is furious. He is blazing mad. And I wonder why. (laughs) I mean, this is no different than any other time. Pharaoh hardening his heart. Plague comes, hardened heart. Plague comes, hardened heart. Why is Moses angry this time? I believe, folks, it was a holy anger of compassion. Can anger be compassionately driven? I think so. I I have a, a weird quirk about me. I hate to see my kids get hurt. It makes me mad. It does. Cheryl will tell you. Hayden will come flying down the hallway at 150 miles an hour and not make the turn and go smashing straight into a wall. And my first impulse is not, oh, son, my first impulse is, what are you doing? And it's not because I'm angry with him, but I'm angry that he got hurt. I go running over there, did you not see the wall, son? Could you not have slowed down a bit? What's wrong with you? And I get angry, but I'm not mad at him. I'm mad that he got hurt. It's a compassion-driven anger. It's a good thing I have Cheryl around to go, okay, I got it, I got it, honey. And I just go, man, who put that wall there? (laughs) I think Moses is so angry right now. And it's an anger of compassion because he knows that the stupid hard-heartedness of Pharaoh is going to cost Egypt their firstborn. And I don't think Moses wanted to see that happen. This compassionate anger of Moses is the same hot anger that Jesus had when he looked around at the Jewish leaders on that Sabbath and said, Is it against the law that I heal this man on the Sabbath? And they didn't say a word. And he was so angry with them. Because here was a man suffering and they didn't want him healed for their law. A holy anger. Or the hot anger of Jesus that motivated the serious ransacking of the temple to clear out all the money changers, to get the finances as far away from worship as possible so as not to be a distraction. It was compassion-driven anger. I don't want people focusing on the birds and the money. I want them focusing on the Lord. What is this doing here? It doesn't belong. It's that same compassionate hot anger that will accompany the wrath of the Father when the last shoe drops and the world comes into the tribulation. It's the holy anger of compassion. He does not want the firstborn to die. He doesn't want Egypt to be decimated. Moses is angry. God got it, Pharaoh. If you had responded early on, none of this would have happened. So he goes out in hot anger. Verse 9 The Lord comes to Moses, and I believe God is coming to pacify, to calm Moses down here. And he said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, so that my wonders will be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Remember, Moses, I've got an agenda. Verse 10, summing it up, tells us Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh. Yet the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the sons of Israel go out of his land. Why again did God multiply his wonders in Egypt? What again was his agenda? It's what we started with tonight. That we may know that he is the Lord. That all of Egypt, a picture of the world, that all the world will know that he is the Lord. It's always his agenda that people would know him. Because again, it is only through knowing him, acknowledging his lordship, submitting to his authority, that a person can be saved. 
We'll end on this verse, Matthew 7.22. Jesus said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Let's pray. Father, that we may know that you are the Lord. That is a very, very clear statement through our study tonight. Why are we here in Bible study? And why do we show up for worship? Why do we gather together with other Christians, Father, and talk about these things? Why do we pray in our homes, with our children, with our families? Why, why do we share Jesus with people who haven't heard about Him or who have chosen not to live for Him? Why do we call ourselves Christians, Lord? Why do we take communion on Sundays? Why do we baptize people? Why do we do any of it? It's that we may know that You are the Lord. And Father, I know we all together share this feeling and we speak from the heart tonight as we proclaim You to be the Lord of our lives and the Lord of this world and the Lord of our future. We know that You are the Lord. And God, we want to know You. Not just to perform things in Your name, not to go through it by rote but to know that you are the Lord. And in this knowledge, in this relationship, God, that we might know that we'll be with you, our Lord, forever. Father, if anyone among us tonight has had a week or a season of doubt, if there's anyone here who has been feeling a little less than sure about your Lordship in their life, I pray that you will tonight reconfirm it with their heart. And I pray, Father, that you will lift up our eyes to see how glorious you truly are. How wonderful and majestic you are, dear Lord and our God. 